On this week's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Niraj Kapoor, a top sales trainer, sales coach, LinkedIn trainer, and best-selling author. Niraj, absolutely thrilled to have you on the Purpose Dead Leadership Podcast. We've been speaking over the last few months on various platforms, actually LinkedIn and uh, Clubhouse. Um, really want to get to know you and get under the bonnet of you as a human being. So if you wouldn't mind, like I ask all my guests, I'd love to know a bit more about you as a person. So if you want to go back almost to your school days or sooner and give us an overview of yourself, your journey and uh, up until now, please. A pleasure and thank you so much for having me on your podcast it's, it's so lovely because so many of my mutual friends who I have tremendous respect for have been in your podcast that makes it even more special right. um well until the age of 11 i mean i, I grew up in, in northern ireland my, my grandfather was one of the first indians here in 1952 uh, and my father came over obviously at the same time so you know i was born and grew up here and until the age of 11 i had the most blessed childhood any child could have really i mean i was top student in school top footballer in my team captain of pretty much everything head boy you know i was a person everybody you <laughs> look to as, as an example of excellence it was a perfect childhood in my small town and then all of a sudden i went to high school and i just went boo. it just everything went wrong everything that could go wrong went wrong um i realized that being brilliant in a small town meant absolutely nothing in the real world because um, I went to Balmain Academy, which is like the Eton of Northern Ireland, except you don't have to pay £20,000 a year for fees, you know. It was a bit more safe, you know. It, but it is the best school, and still today it's probably the top three in the country. And I was with all these amazing people, and all of a sudden I felt so average, and I wasn't special, I didn't get attention, I had to fight so hard for everything. Uh, but in all fairness, all I did during those three years was play sports and chase girls, because when you're a teenager, it's all you care about, you know. Um and my father said, right, enough's enough. And after three years, he moved me back to a local school in my small town, where most kids, sadly, had never left the small town. They had no idea what the world was about. And plus, I was a new kid. I was the only colored kid in my year. So I just spent the next four years dealing with racial abuse and verbal abuse and living a life of a miserable, acne-ridden teenager <laughs> with national health classes. And it was just the most awful, every cliche you see in an American movie, that was pretty much my life without the actual humor, you know? Mm. Wow. I mean, that's even in that sort of short snippet there. I mean, I was going to ask you, you know, being colored in Northern Ireland, that, you know, it's, it's it must have been a challenge because, just because of the way people, you know, deem people. Um, talk to me a bit more about that around how it affected you and what actually happens, particularly at school. I mean, School children could be quite vicious, whether it's intense, intentional or not, can't they? They can't. Until the age of 11, I never had racism. Um, it just it never affected me because kids that age tend to be a bit more kinder, a bit more nicer, and they just they tend to just get on with you, which is great. And in all fairness, I always consider myself Irish. It was the locals who thought I was Indian. But as far as I'm concerned, right. I'm Irish. I was born in Belfast. I was raised there. Yeah. All my friends were white. I mean, I, I didn't see myself as being different it was other people who saw that um and it was only when i was 11 and i captained the football team and we went and played some teams in belfast some schools in belfast mm. where i first heard the words packy and other offensive words as well and unfortunately when they called me that before the matches i didn't have the confidence or the emotional resilience at that age to cope with it so sure. it affected my confidence ended up thrashing us in football and i thought whoa people are gonna be quite cruel but it was a one-off and i thought nothing about it until I went to high school, then at the bus stop all the time, all the different Protestant schools and Catholic schools were there. Yeah. And I was the only Indian kid there. So yeah, it, it was pretty horrible. And I went from being a really outgoing, positive kid to just becoming a hermit, really. Um, that was just how I dealt with it as a child. As an adult, I deal with things much differently, of course, but as a kid, mm -hmm. it's hard to process so much hatred. And I just lost all my confidence. And I became a very quiet child with very little confidence. It was a complete flip. Yeah. And the slightest thing would upset me and I became very emotional. And I just, I couldn't cope with life. Some people cope very well under pressure, but I just didn't. I just completely, yeah, it was difficult. It was very, very difficult. And I just became one of these deeply insecure children with no confidence who would walk around with his head down all the time, kind of almost afraid to make eye contact because nobody stood by me. Nobody said, hey, 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 that's wrong. And yet people knew it was wrong, but nobody said anything. Mm. And that made it even worse probably, you know? Mm. That was that was obviously high school. So what what happened beyond that, and how has that kind of changed or manifested into into how you're operating now? Well, I think when you go through this for many many years, it affects you on quite a profound level. 
And, you know, I remember speaking to my parents about it. And they said, look, it doesn't matter. Just work it off. Now, as an adult, you can work your problems off. When you're a teenager, you can't. You need closure of some kind. Mm. And eventually, I kept complaining to my father. So he went to school one day and said to my, the headmaster, look, these boys are bullying my son with racism. Just sort it out. He goes and talks to the bullies. The bullies go and tell everybody in school, my father. <laughs> it just, wow. every, everything that happened made things worse. And yeah. I kind of just caught myself in a dream world of just, music and loving rock music because in the 80s that's what it was about it was about great rock music and and discovering the joys of music and mm. i just wanted to be a rock star and i, I kind of figured chris that if i was a rock star and i became famous and rich <laughs> and then people would like me and not make fun of me because of the color of my skin it was yeah. kind of a naive thing to think but it's the kind of thing a teenager would think and that was it and um, i asked my father for a few thousand pounds you know to record music in the studio and being an immigrant man he told me where to go <laughs> he says if you want the money go get it yourself so I, I got a job stacking shelves in supermarkets for like oh my goodness two pound 20 an hour something ridiculous you know, back in those days yeah, yeah. um but i got promoted very quickly to night shift because i worked really hard and then after night shift I said, what else can i do and i got working on sundays because in those days shops really weren't open on sundays yet so it was like double time which is like four pound you know 40 an hour so i just took every sunday work i could every night shift job i could over summers and christmases for about two years and i saved enough money to go into a recording studio and record a demo tape and mm. then i took that demo tape left home said to my parents right i'm never coming back to this dump ever and i went to london to find my fortune uh because i had money saved up and i had a demo tape i was going to be famous within 24 hours and i, w I went to epic and sony and virgin um all, all, all record stores back then the all record companies and they all said uh, we don't know you leave your cassette here i said but i've flown from northern ireland and they said we don't care just leave your cassette here and i did and about three months later they all said you're not what we're looking for that, that was the kind of thing you got in those days. It wasn't, nobody called you up and said, great work, good for you. Just, you're not what we're looking for. Mm. And I'm like, how do I improve? How do you get better? Mm. And that's why there's so many bad musicians and so many terrible writers in the UK, because most of us have no guidance. Most of us have no idea yeah. what we're doing wrong. And that was it. And I spent the next year and a half unemployed and humiliated and embarrassed. And I just cut myself off on the world and just didn't deal with anybody. That was it. It was kind of awful and pathetic and embarrassing, really. But I felt so ashamed that I'd failed at my goal in life, age 19, that I just blamed the government and my father and my upbringing and the racist Irish. Because I blamed everybody except myself, unfortunately. Because mm. again, I didn't have any self-awareness at that age. I had no idea that I was 100% responsible for my success. Because <laughs> I just blamed everybody else. That's what you did in those days. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was pretty rough. It was a really, it was just every day you wake up and life is shit. That's it. That's all you see is a shit life mm. with no hope. And you're in a constant negative state. And if you're in a constant negative state, you don't achieve anything ever. Right. But at 19, you don't know any better, you know? Wow. Okay. This is, this is really getting to the nitty gritty of you as a person. I, you know, I, I love the fact that you had that belief, that desire, that determination to kind of just get on that plane and, you know, just expect you to become a, a famous star overnight. And then obviously to have that knockback, I get the sense that you're very in tune. You're quite an emotional individual. You, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're in tune with your emotions, but we'll talk about your dad as well, but you've, you've used words such as ashamed and uh, all, all that kind of stuff. But so moving into your early twenties to what you're doing now, I mean, you're, um, you know, doing, you're, you're a public speaker, you're a trainer, you're a coach, you're, you, you know, you do your best-selling author. You have to have lots of inner, inner confidence for, for that. So carry on the journey because there still seems to be a bit of a dichotomy to where you've just left off to what you're doing now. Yeah, about a year and a half of unemployment. I hardly said a word to my parents. And one day there was a knock on my door. And we live in a council estate, a rundown council estate in North London. Nobody ever talks to you. Literally, you can spend an entire year not speaking to a human being. And there was a knock on the door one day, and it was my father. And he said, look, this is ridiculous. I know you're unhappy at life. I know you're unhappy at everybody and the way I brought you up and how strict the father I was and how horrible life has been to you. But you're achieving nothing here. You've you got to get a job. And the problem was I had no degree. I had no qualification. I had nothing. Now, in the modern world, that doesn't mean too much. But... In 1994, it meant everything. You had to have a degree, otherwise you became a, a labourer. There was nothing else to do. Right. And so I looked for jobs. Back in those days, it was the evening standard in London. And I think it was every Friday they would have jobs 
And the only job I could get, which I needed no qualifications for, was sales. And they would have things like our top salesperson earned £2,000 in commission last week. And I thought, really? Oh, okay. Because again, you're young, you think, well, I'll have a lot of money, I'll be happy. Mm. And um, so I applied for the job. And within 15 minutes of the interview, they gave it to me. I thought, yes, I'm a natural salesperson. I'm going to be rich. It was so, so silly. I'm like, this is amazing. And I started the job and they gave me an A4 sheet of paper. I said, I want you to learn this in the next 60 minutes. And I thought, yes, no problem. And I learned the 60 minute script and goes, get in the phone. And there's only one rule. You do not get off that phone. Yeah. You, I thought, okay. So I said, hi, my name's Neeraj. I'm calling from this publishing company. And we sell this, this, this. And after a minute, they would have an objection. And I would be, oh God, what do I say? Yeah. And the boss would go, just keep talking. And, I, and it was so badly done. All, all these bad stories you hear of salespeople calling you and not shutting up. I had that because that's mm -hmm. how I was sadly trained. There was, there was no training. It was just read the script. Don't stop. Somebody asks you a question, ignore it and keep talking. And that's how I was taught. Wow. And after a week, I realized I'm not getting anywhere. So I went looking for jobs at companies where they would train me up. And I, I literally went all over Soho. I knocked on every door. When you knock on doors in Soho, Chris, nobody opens the door and goes, hey, we love your tenacity. We love your energy. Please come. Nobody. Everybody says, we'll get in touch or not interested. You have no qualifications. And it, it was pretty rough. It was just horrible. Again, rejection, 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 rejection. And then finally, a company called Centaur Communications, who were a beast of a publishing house in the 80s and 90s. Hmm. Uh, the secretary, Mary, she was from Northern Ireland. And she said, look, the head of HR is on her lunch break, but I'll tell her about you. And I just waited there. Head of HR came back. She said, I've heard all about you. Mary said, you're from her part of the world. And your tenacity is amazing. Let's have a chat. And I started work the following week. So wow. that, that's something I'm grateful for. You need a bit of luck sometimes. And I do believe if you keep persisting, 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 eventually, yeah. somehow, a bit of luck will come your way. It's interesting because on one hand, you know, how we were parented or how I was parented was, it sounds like your father was quite strict. My father was, 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 was not very strict. And at the time, you probably felt that it was... It was it was wasn't the right parenting for you, but and it probably wasn't. But then from that, he's a, he has enabled you to kind of drive on. I mean, how would you how how do you feel about your relationship with your father in terms of how he parented you, what you've learned, what you haven't learned in that regard? Well, back then I thought it was terrible. His only emotions were anger and hunger. <laughs> but again, that's that's the immigrant upbringing. It's anger and hunger. And anytime you have a day off, what are you a day off for? What's a day off? You know, immigrants have yeah. such that intensely hardworking mentality. You never waste money. You scrimp and save for everything you have. Education is the most important thing in the world in their eyes. Yes. There's a lot of Indians, that's still the way it is. But with immigrants especially, it's education, education, education. Mm. And my problem was I didn't enjoy school because I didn't care about the, getting a, a grade A in my physics exam. It meant nothing to me. No. All, all I cared about was surviving, not dealing with racism, and having a girlfriend and being a rock star. That was all I cared about as a teenager. I wasn't against hard work. I just found school tedious, boring, and meaningless. And I'm sorry, it is. Yeah. You know, the things I need to teach you in school, Chris, are personal development, absolutely money, charity work, nutrition, money, entrepreneurism, and giving to others. These are the most important things in the world. And none of it was taught to me in school. None of it. And that's what you have to be taught. And nothing made sense to me. And I questioned everything. I questioned the teachers that were all miserable and hated their jobs. I questioned what I was learning. And people used to think I was difficult because I questioned everything. Looking back, I'm really proud of myself for doing so. But again, nobody backed me up. So nobody listened to me. <laughs> I was a weird kid that questioned everything, but it made no sense. Um, so my relationship with my father was very fractured until I became a father myself. Right. Um, and that happened a few years into my sales job. All of a sudden, I started off at the bottom in sales, and I just worked my ass off. That was it. I, I wasn't particularly gifted at all. Mm. I just, everybody worked half nine to half five. And back in those days, you had two-hour lunches with clients, sometimes three-hour lunches, you know. And what I did was I came into the office at half eight every day, and I worked until about half five, six. That was it. Yeah. I just outworked people. I didn't have any particular skills. Um, and I just cared about customers. That was it. Hard work and caring about people and one day I, I spoke to my publisher she was i've always had female bosses through most of my career been quite lucky and a lot of men find female bosses very intimidating and mm. I, I i don't know any better because again i've always had female bosses yeah. and i said to her one day look can i have a word with you please annie and she went sure i said look 
everybody's terrified of you. I mean, literally they tremble when you walk in the room and you bark at people a lot, but you're so nice to me. <laughs> you're so nice to me. Um, can I ask why? And she goes, grab a seat. And I sat down with her and she says, Neeraj, when I come to the office at half eight, you're at the office at the same time and you're reading competing magazines and looking for leads. Yeah. And you outwork people and you don't gossip and you make me money. You keep doing that, you'll do all right in life. And that was it. And she promoted me relentlessly over 10 years, paid me very well. And yeah, it was a good lesson to learn. I didn't have many skills, but I never gossiped about people. Yeah. I worked. I was always looking at the competition and looking for new leads. And, you know, I just made money for the company. And that was 10 amazing years of my career. And that enabled me to buy a house in London. Okay, it was a two-bedroom terrorist house, but it enabled me to buy a house, buy a car, getting the property ladder yeah. at the age of, you know, 25. I was very young to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, and that, that was incredible. And then I started dating at age 25, thinking I've got money now, I've got security. Let's go out into the world of dating. But the fact was, in London, it's hard to make friends. And I didn't really know anybody. And, and nowadays, modern dating apps and websites is very common. But Chris, 1995, sorry, 1997, this would have been, sorry, now, the, only the most people who make fun of you if you join a dating agency they did that the office they actually made fun of me saying oh my god you're so desperate just go to the pub and get drunk like everybody else but I wasn't meeting the people I, I connected with so I joined dating agencies had no luck um, fell in love with a woman who was the love of my life mm. um, and we did it together for a year she had three kids she, she'd escaped a very violent and aggressive husband an amazing woman ended up changing her name and moved away from him, brought up three kids by herself, amazing wow. woman. Yeah. And I fell in love with her and became a stepfather to her kids. And I told my parents one day about her. My parents were like, you cannot go out with a single mother, they're damaged goods. And I then spoke to her parents and they said, look, she's Sikh, you're Hindu, we would rather she was dead. So wow. <laughs> I was like, God. Wow. That was horrible. So I kind of went to, I was kind of a mess. and I needed a holiday. My parents were going to India, and they said, look, why don't you come to India and get a break? And I thought, okay, good point. I might as well. I was quite upset and quite hurt. I don't even know why I went to India with them based on what they did, but I did anyway. And when I got there, my mother had arranged some uh, meetings with women. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, I've been alone in London for so many years, and the woman I loved has rejected me. I come home alone to my apartment every night, and I had end up meeting a woman in just north of New Delhi. And I said to her, uh, you know, will you be loyal to me? And she went, yes. And I said, okay, do you like cooking? She went, yeah. I said, do you like The Simpsons? She went, yeah. <laughs> um, I said, yeah, okay, I'll marry you. <laughs> so I, I look back at it and I think, what the hell is wrong with me? But that's what I said. And then four days later, 800 strangers turned up uh, at our wedding. It was wow. terrifying. It was so scary. Oh, God. That's, that's some qualifying criteria there, especially the Simpsons one. That must have been the... Uh... <laughs> well, that's important for sense of humour, you know. You've got to know, you've got to have a good sense of humour with somebody, you know. Love that. Big wedding as well. So let's go back on that a little bit around... You said in that little bit there, you said that you don't feel you're particularly gifted quite a few times. You didn't have that skill or not. There's, there's a lot of stuff there that resonates with me as well. When you say that, I'd like to challenge that because I think you're, I think you're so gifted... And it's, it's, it's more around the intuition and, and the curiosity and the, and you do have that inner belief. And I, th I think that if you hadn't been so curious and you hadn't done the work on yourself and you hadn't pushed the boundaries, you wouldn't have got where you are today. And that's a gift in itself. And I think I'll ask you a question around, um, I believe there's certain people on this planet. I think we're all guided and we're all guides. We all have certain gifts. And I, I believe my purpose now is to is to serve others and 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 uh, mentor and teach them in the role that I do, and I, th I think I finally found that. Do you feel that you uh, was at this sort of stage, or when did you feel that you started to find your purpose? Because I, I, I do believe you do feel you're gifted, and now you've got the confidence. But back then, maybe you didn't. So, what do you say to that? Thank you, first of all, um, and second of all, it took me a long time to find my purpose in life because. Once I got married, you know, it was difficult because I found myself living with somebody I didn't know and had nothing in common with. Now, thankfully, thank God, she was beautiful and she was an amazing cook. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, that might sound quite artificial, but those things are important. <laughs> you know, they just work at age. I was 25 years old. She was she was 18. I mean, if you wow. think about it, no, it's just insanity. She left everything behind. 
yeah, to come to. Uh, now, bear in mind, in India, even though we have the internet nowadays and people have a regular idea of what England is like, you know, back in 1997, there was no internet really, and nobody really knew what England was like apart from Bollywood movies. Mm-hmm. And in Bollywood movies, everybody lives in a big mansion in Hampstead, and they all they all speak like the Queen, and they all sing and dance. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it was a different world. She, she came to this council estate in South Harrow going, Jesus, what is this? Nobody would speak to her. Nobody would talk to her. There was no singing and dancing. There was no big magic. It was just a harsh reality of gritty life in London, which yeah. was quite a culture shock to anybody who's just left their home behind. And, and, and we really struggled in, in the marriage. And I, having lived alone for so many years, I found it difficult living with somebody else. It's very difficult. It's a big shock. And it was only when she became pregnant that all of a sudden we started to bond a wee bit. And when our daughter was born, kind of things changed. And that was the first time in life I understood what a purpose was. Right. All of a sudden, I had a reason to kind of work hard. It wasn't just pure grit anymore. Yeah. It was actually, okay, wow, I'm a dad now. This is amazing. And I'm not going to be the father my father was. I'm going to be much more patient. Mm. I'm not going to yell in frustration at things. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm going to be a really good dad. And, and that was a big changing point in my life for me, certainly. But it really wasn't until many years later when I got promoted. I got headhunted by the Guardian newspaper group. Wow. And I spent uh, six years there launching. You know, in 2006, I launched the first ever digital media event. It was called the Future Media Event back then. And all of a sudden, I'm speaking to directors at Facebook and Microsoft and a company called Google that just opened up, which nobody had even heard of. At the time, there was AOL and Alta Vista and all these companies. I was, in those days, working for the Guardian, you could meet the top people, which was amazing. And I built all these events and all these conferences. It became very successful. Yeah. And during the 2008 recession, a lot of people lost their jobs, but I kept mine, Chris, because again, I was making good money for the Guardian. And I became better at sales. I became better at asking questions and seeing the bigger picture. And again, my work ethic was remarkable. And I picked up the phone, but I still wasn't hugely gifted or in any, any way, really. But it was, I asked my boss a few times for a pay rise. And in 2010, he brought me into the office, so October 2010. And I thought, yes, finally, after all these years, I'm finally going to get a pay rise. And he said, look, we've had to let so many people go to Guardian over the years. Uh, we don't need you anymore, but thank you for your time. I'm like, what? That's, hang on a second. I've been one of the top performers. Why let me go? Well, we have to cut costs. We're going to replace you with a graduate. It's just the dumbest thing I've heard. I'm making half a million pound a year for this yeah, business. Of course. And you're getting rid of me. You're going to lose your marriage. It's nothing personal. It's business. Mm. And that really hurt me. Mm. And that affected me very badly. And I went through a bit of a midlife crisis because every time I'd go for a job, Chris, I was angry. Right. <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody wants to hurt anybody angry. I'm like, yeah, God, <laughs> don't talk to me about the garden. Oh, my God. I gave him my life. You know, and okay. so nobody wanted to hire me. And after a few months, the money ran out. Because most people don't have more than a month's savings in their bank account. I had about three, and it went. And I'm like, oh, God. And then you start to really get depressed. And my father flew over and sat down with my wife and my daughter, and we had an intervention with me. He said, Nira, look, you've got depression. You're going through a midlife crisis. You're very angry. I understand why. You've got to get back on your feet. You've got to do something. And I was depressed, but I, I wasn't aware what depression was because I hadn't had one for almost such a long time. Yeah. Um, and I thought, okay, how do I get out of this? Because I don't want to go, I don't want history repeating itself, Chris, like it did when I was 19 and unemployed. That was horrible. I can never go through that again. Yeah. Um, and he goes, let's, let's go to the bookshop and just let's look at some books and see what we can do. So my daughter had to go to WH Smith to pick up some stuff from school. So she was downstairs with my wife, my father. I was upstairs and I went to the self-help section. And the self-help section was full of middle-aged women in cardigans and sandals and socks. (laughs) Oh, God, this is quite embarrassing. And I kind of rushed back downstairs like a complete coward and went to look at my rock magazines because I I love reading rock magazines still. And on the way, you know, I think in life, sometimes you need, you can call it good luck or Mm. a bit of fortune. Um, I came across this magazine called Success, How to Improve Your Life. And I thought, oh, okay. And I started reading it. Uh, I came across this guy called Tony Robbins. Changed my life. I came across Jim Rowan. I came across Jack Canfield. I came across people who I would, I would go on to admire, worship, attend their events, buy mm-hmm. their courses, read their mm-hmm. books. Uh, but at the time, I just I was reading this going, this is incredible. And you would have a free audio CD 
I've never listened to an audio CD in my life in terms of learning. And they're saying things like you're 100% responsible for your career. Yeah. Uh, the power of living is giving. If you want to be happy, write checks to charity. For me, I give nothing to charity because I thought, hey, I haven't got any money. How can I give to charity? And they said, you know, if you want to do more in life, you've got to become more. And all these great sayings that never, I'd never seen before. That they, they yeah. were like, oh my God, this is just incredible. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. And all of a sudden I went and bought out, you know, the seven books of highly effective people by Stephen Covey and the compound effect by Darren Hardy mm. and the success principles by Jack Canfield and unlimited power by Tony Robbins. And yeah. I became a bookworm. And within literally about two weeks of reading these books, all of a sudden my confidence is back. I'm applying for jobs. I'm a more confident person. And I turned down a very well paid job to take a job that was less salary, but gave me management training. That's right. the smartest thing I ever did. Because all of a sudden now, I, I got coached. Mm. And the MD was so impressed, he ended up mentioning me in this new job. And all of a sudden, my career skyrocketed. But more importantly, myself skyrocketed. I became a, a better human being. I became a more caring human being. I discovered more of the secret of life is about helping others, serving others, like you said, sure, sure. being a person of value, but also at the same time, working as a manager, you know, managing staff, which is so difficult, way more difficult than you realize. Working in a FTSE 100 company where the pressures are unbelievable, mm. but also working in a company where there's no limits in terms of what I can achieve. And, and all of a sudden, the next three years of my life, I achieved everything I wanted in terms of the President's Club, pay rises, job titles, personal perks and benefits. Um, it was just incredible. It really was. And my wife and I then moved into the dream house, a country house, which I've always dreamed of. Yeah. And we moved into the country house and it was just beautiful and life is perfect. I thought, this is great. I've achieved my dreams. Now I've got a dream car. She's got her Range Rover Sports. We live in a country house where the top 1% live in Buckinghamshire. This is beautiful. Yeah. And so many people in life dream of having this perfect state, utopia. Mm. But what people don't talk about is what happens when you get there? <laughs> and that's where we're all like, you know, it's like, oh, shit, what do I do now? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the CEO left the business and a new CEO came on board who I didn't like or get on with. And all of a sudden, he cut back in the commissions. And all of a sudden, I'm having to work seven days a week to pay the mortgage in a country house. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm miserable. And all of a sudden, our marriage starts to show cracks. And then our daughter goes to university. And it's just me and my wife left. And it's like, fuck. Yeah. Oh, Jesus, it's just the two of us. And it was unbearable silence in our house. Just the three of us in the marriage. Wow. And my daughter had gone to university. And um, it was horrible. And we knew the end was in sight now. Mm -hmm. And we tried date nights. We tried to keep it together. We really did. Uh, the problem was I wasn't happy at my work. And so I started looking for other jobs. I joined one or two other companies. I joined smaller businesses thinking, I've always worked for big corporates. Let's try something new. I didn't enjoy working in small companies. They were just organized and very badly run. And I just didn't enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't happy, but I didn't know what it, what the reason was. I wanted to do more coaching because coaching is my strength. It's what I really wanted to do. When you're working a small business, you're trying to earn money. Nobody cares about coaching. They don't. And all I wanted to do was coach. So I wasn't being allowed to do what I wanted to do. I wasn't happy. I was stressed working seven days a week. My marriage was out of whack. And we tried going on a holiday to India. It was my brother-in-law's wedding. And we went on a holiday. And then we had the wedding. And we knew it was over because we fought day and night. It was quite tragic and painful the end of the marriage. But that's what happened. Mm -hmm. um, and I went through a real downward spiral for two years of battling depression and mental health. Because all of a sudden, my marriage was over. And my identity was over. And all of a sudden, you're fighting over a, a big, expensive house. Yeah. And my daughter then got really upset about the marriage and just everything kind of just slowly, the whole dream just kind of died. Mm. And during this whole process, I realized it really isn't about the money. It's about my mental health. Yeah. It's about having a purpose in life. It's about having good health. Mm. It's about having caring friends. Because when you go through very severe times in life, Chris, you realize who your friends are. Absolutely. And sadly, they're not, they're not often who you think they are. And that was quite a shock. Wow. Sorry, I went on to a bit there, but I just I, thought there was a lot, lot to say. 
again, there's a lot of synergies in it with myself. I mean, I, I got to that level where I had the the mansion and everything else. But, and every time I got to these these levels, it was good. But I look look back now, and I, I felt I probably wasn't on the planet. I mean, in terms in terms of when you when you achieve those materialistic things, talk to us about how that made you feel, and perhaps the difference between that feeling and the feeling you've got now, where I believe you're still money orientated, but the fulfillment and contentment and purpose feeling of happiness. I think I personally feel there's, com- there's a complete difference in, in those two oh, things. A complete difference, yeah. Um, now, you know, I think also, you know, before, because you're always taught having a beautiful big house, having fancy holidays, and a dream car will make you happy. So I was always aspiring to that. And there's a great short term pleasure. Don't get me wrong, when you yeah. achieve financial success, there's a tremendous short term pleasure that lasts a few weeks. And there's a wonderful saying by Jim Carrey, which I love. I only discovered, only heard this sadly a few years ago, but he says, I wish everybody in the world could be rich and successful and famous so they can understand that is not the point of life. Totally. And I'm like, whoa. Totally. And it's so true. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I, I never heard that saying, sadly. I wish I'd, I'd heard it at the time, but I didn't. I'm like, okay, that's a good point. But, you know, you're, you're constantly going after the materialistic things because there's an emptiness in your life. Mm. And you keep believing that the next big thing will make you happy, but you eventually achieve what you want. It's like, what yeah. now? You need the emotional side. And yeah. once I, I lost so much in my divorce and really had to start again, and then lockdown happened. And spending four months alone in lockdown really messed me up quite badly. Because, right. you know, I'm an affectionate human being. I like hugs. I enjoy seeing people. All my business is face-to-face coaching. All my business is LinkedIn training, but it's seeing people. Yeah. And to have that and to have networking events and live rock music gigs all taken away from me in four months. If you go four months without seeing people, without talking to people, without me, it's very damaging. It's almost, I was going back when I was 19 years old again. Except yeah. this time I actually wanted to see people. Yes. but. All I kept doing was going back to 19 years old. I have no hope. I can't see people. I've lost my business. What do I do? Mm. Uh, and luckily, I had hundreds of books on personal development and business, which I just, I just studied them again. And I started doing things like Brian Tracy, you know, get a top 20 list and yeah. make a list of 20 things to do. The first 10 are quite easy, but after that, it gets really hard, you know. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, I must write a second book. Uh, it's my first book, Everybody Works in Sales, became an international bestseller, so I've got to do a second book, and i got to do webinars. i got to do a mastermind group. And, you know, all of a sudden, you're doing all... And I, I launched a podcast. I did everything yeah. Yeah, in yeah. 2022. Now, the podcast only did 17 episodes, didn't quite work out, but I'm glad I did it. And mm-hmm. the second book, did well, not as well as the first book, but still well enough to keep me going. All my competition were doing free master classes and webinars. I did paid for ones. That really helped me stand out. Mm-hmm. And after the 47 pound limit, you start to get people who are clients. And after 97 pound, you start to actually get really good clients. You know, so yeah. it was a whole learning process, which I'm glad I went through because if my business had gone well, I would never have learned that. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, I have to go through that hard time to become better and smarter. And yeah, I want to touch on your mental health and well-being in a minute. But in terms of um, what you do, you're a you know you're a sales coach, you're a LinkedIn coach, and obviously, when we talk about money not being important, how do you how do you frame that in what you teach? Because obviously, as a salesperson, it's all about going for the targets, going for the money, going for the sale. So, how do you combine that drive, enthusiasm, uh, when you're coaching people to make as much money as possible? with also what you've been through around monies and the whole answer as well? Excellent question. Uh, The first thing everybody has to do when they work with me is create a vision board. And that is key. And the vision board has to be like two parts. The first part is what have you achieved in life to date? Because quite often we're very quick to criticize ourselves as human beings and very slow to remember all the good things we've done. Yes. And the second part of the vision board is what you want to achieve in the future. Now, a lot of people will have a house. Or somewhere like, you know, Australia, yeah. Vegas. Uh, they often have a sports car. I said, that's great. I am happy for you to have that. But what about the emotional side? Yeah. What about your health? What about your partner's health? What about your kids? What about your parents? People often forget those things because they default to the materialistic things. Yeah. And we spend time working the vision boards. And the vision board is a mixture of their professional goals, but also their personal goals. Absolutely. And I make sure they're always linked together. Mm. So they know if they're chasing after a piece of business or a piece or a client, it's not just financially they're going to benefit. It's the fact they're doing it for their family, yes. for their loved ones, 
you know, and what is your purpose? And your purpose is always in the vision board. Yeah. And your purpose can't, the, I think now that I'm three years into my business, now my business finally went into profit in February 2021. And I've had now five months of solid profit, which is great after three well years. Yeah. Thank you. It, it's like, I see things a bit differently now. I've kind of been through the storm. I see things differently. Yeah. And so I teach my clients to go after, of course, their financial goals. Yes. But it means nothing unless you have personal goals to go with that. That's how you balance it out. And that's really key. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you, you touched on around, you said the word accountability and you're 100% responsible for your own kind of success. But also I feel that what I get a sense from you is that you're like me. We've both had similar senses of adversity and at the start of your life up until you said 1920 you blamed everyone else apart from yourself you blamed dad you blamed everyone else the conditions and all that kind of stuff and then something maybe it was the, the birth of your of your child changed your perspective around actually i can use what's happened to me as as a gift and i think that comes out in you and i think i i use that in my coaching as well and what i do in in my, in my life as well so what's your what's your thought around using adversity as a gift and a strength as a, as opposed to it being a victim you know victimizing it well it's huge i mean i have a a unique kind of client that works with me when i started off my business i wanted to have the big clients i wanted the microsoft the googles the barclays you know the big players you do because you don't know any better Mm. And, you know, on my LinkedIn profile, there's a beautiful testimonial from Barclays who I've worked quite extensively with. I've done one-to-one coaching at staff at Google in Dublin, yeah. and I'm, I'm very proud of doing that. But it takes such a long time to win these clients. They only hire you once or twice a year. But majority of the people I work with, almost about 90%, are business owners. And mm. uh, they tend to hire me in a one-to-one level saying, look, I need to close more deals in my business. That's why most people hire me. They want to close more deals or they want to understand how to use LinkedIn better. Yeah. Yeah. And so I now spend, I always have a half an hour chat with somebody first. And I will say, okay, what is it you want to achieve? And why do you want to achieve it? And that's a very, I ask that, it's the second question I ask, why do you want to achieve it? Yeah. And why haven't you achieved this already? Mm. So what do you want to achieve? Why do you want to achieve it? And why is it not being achieved already yeah and the fourth important question is what deadlines are you working to because if someone doesn't have a deadline they're not going to make a decision <laughs> Just, you know, it'll take forever so those are key questions i ask and we discuss that and based on the answers i get a lot of the time people will approach me for sales or linkedin but once they get talking to me and they start opening up me bear in mind at this stage they've often followed my linkedin content for at least three months if not longer yeah, sure. Many often have bought at least one of my books, so they already have a bit of familiarity with me. So there's already a tiny bit of trust there. And so once I've answered those four questions, we often start organically talking about family. I don't say, how many kids do you have? You know, I don't, no. There's, there's, no, there's no process to that. No. It tends to happen naturally. Yeah. And so many people who are business owners over the age of 40 are either bored after about five years and don't really know how to grow the business, or they're simply struggling with sales because email doesn't really work as well as it used to. And a lot of the time, you know, people hire me, they think I'm a sales coach or a LinkedIn trainer, but I spent half my work doing mindset coaching, yeah. confidence coaching, yeah. vision boards, yeah. goals, accountability. You know, that's really why people hire me. And the last reason is the most common thing people say. They know I care. Yeah, I'm not the number one LinkedIn trainer in the UK, not even close. Yeah, but I'm one of the most caring people you will meet who generally want you to do well, and that's very important. I think that's why you're you look at, because because you know you can have the framework and the operations and the techniques. Obviously, as you as you know, they're they're really really important. But without that kind of EQ, that ability to be a bit vulnerable, be open, be accountable to yourself, and tap into your emotions. I know up until recently, mentioning vulnerability and leadership or mental health or well being in any sort of sales role was was frowned upon, wasn't it? And I think oh, completely. I think it's about using your individual lived experiences and, and relating to, to the people that you're coaching. Kindness and vulnerability, Chris, are two of the most underrated qualities in business and probably two of the most important. And one of the very few good things that have happened since March 2020's lockdown, it's allowed people to tell their personal stories more on LinkedIn. Yeah. 
yeah. which I believe is very important. Before then, I would never have thought of doing something like that, <laughs> but now it's acceptable. And people understanding the importance of kindness and vulnerability. And, you know, most people, I always ask people when they hire me, what's the reason you hired me? Mm. And if they say no to me, what's the reason you've said no? Because it's very important to understand your wins, and it's very important as well to understand your losses. Yeah. And majority of people who have hired me They've never said to me, Niraj, I think you're the best of the best. You're the best in the UK. You're the number one. No. Most of them said, Niraj, I trust you. Yeah. Or I know you'll do right by me. Or I've spoken to a few other coaches. And all they, all they talked was numbers and money. All you've talked about is me. And that's the big thing. It's not that I'm number one. I'm very good at what I do. Yeah, yeah. Especially on the sales level. And probably, I, I put myself in the top 10% of salespeople without a doubt in the UK. Right. As a LinkedIn trainer, there's a lot of people better than me. They're, they're, they're just better. But I have the emotional side. I can do that connection a lot of people can't do. And if you look at the LinkedIn recommendations I have and the comments people have made, you can tell that because Neeraj cares. Neeraj listened. Not yeah. Neeraj is number one. He listened to what I have to say. He over-delivered. He listened. He helped. These are very specific words clients use. They're not my words. They're the client's words. And that's really, I think, where business is in 2021 and beyond, Chris. It's about being a person of value. It's serving others. It's helping others. Definitely. So, I mean, this has been such a powerful conversation. We can we can talk longer, but we, we should close relatively quick. Before we do, there's two or three more questions I want to ask you. But we've talked about the past and a bit a bit about the present. What does the future hold for you? What What is your, your own why and your own purpose? Well, in September 2020, after living almost 29 years in England, I moved back to Northern Ireland. Uh, initially, it was temporary. I'd spent four months alone in lockdown. It really messed me up quite bad. I put a lot of weight on. And, you know, something like that's going to affect you. It really is going to affect you quite bad, being alone for so long and having nobody. 99% of the people I know in lockdown had a partner. Mm. or at least a partner in kids or a partner in a dog or something. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't know another person like me in lockdown. I mean, I know that they're out there, but I just didn't know who they were. Mm. Everybody I know was living with somebody or at least one or two people. Yeah. And I didn't have that. And I, I couldn't have that. I, I couldn't rent my house out because of the whole COVID nightmare. So my parents said, look, rent your house out, come back to Northern Ireland, improve your health, improve your well-being. Mm. Um, you need to do that. Uh, it's the best thing. I just rented my house up for six months and came back home. And being able to reconnect with my parents at, an elder, at their elderly age has been a blessing for me. Mm -hmm. uh, being able to take care of them, the fact that I can take care of the groceries, the fact that I can buy them stuff they need, the sure. fact that I, they have to worry about, even though they both have NHS pensions, which are okay, but not really enough, I'm just glad there's no financial worries because we're comfortable now. We're not yeah. loaded, but we're comfortable but some of my friends, Chris, sadly, at my age, don't have fathers anymore. Mm. They've lost fathers over the years, mainly in the last five years from prostate cancer or Parkinson's or heart attacks. But my father still swims six days a week. He still does his charity work three oh. days a week. You know, he's still, he's still a real powerhouse. Even though he's approaching 80, his health's not great. He's still he's always moving forward and that's been lovely reconnecting with him and my mum because I've always been in England and I only see them a few times a year uh, I've had a chance to reconnect with my nephews who I didn't really know again I would see them at Christmas see them on their birthdays they knew who I was but there was no deep relationship mm. and I have a deep very close relationship with both my nephews the youngest is autistic so I'm learning a lot about autism and a special needs school and I'm getting a chance I see my sister every day now I play football with my brother every Sunday. You know, I'm, right. I'm living more of a balanced and fulfilled life. Yes. And improving my mental health means that my confidence is better, which means my business is doing so much better, mm -hmm. which means I'm not chasing leads anymore. I'm looking for clients. It's a very different approach. And uh, I'm not desperate for business anymore. I'm finding that posts I'm doing on LinkedIn, especially in the last four months, the quality has been so high. And my following went from 5,000 last year to 12,500 this year, which is massive. Wow. So people connecting with me and what I'm saying, I've just become such a different person. I, I deal with stress better. I've studied so much emotional intelligence and resilience mm. mindset. So all, all, all these things combined together have yeah. just given me a better outlook on life and a more positive outlook on life.
so yeah doing the work and it's, it's, it's very it's very enriching and enlightening when, when you start to do that and um it feels as if you're entering i might be wrong some sort of kind of when we say purpose i, I, I go another stage and go spirituality what, what are your thoughts on kind of tapping into the universe and spirit? are you not that way inclined or have you done it yourself or have you do you, do you have your own coach as well how have you kind of um reached for other people to help you as well well, I, I strongly believe in coaching. And if you ever speak to a coach and they don't have their own coach, they're not very good at their job. Every coach has a coach. I see a lot of coaches out there trying to get money off clients, but yet they don't invest themselves. Okay. And if you don't invest in yourself, why is anybody going to invest in you? No, nobody should. So I believe 100% everybody should be coached, myself included. And I do get coached. And in terms of where I'm going now, in terms of a higher purpose and spirituality, you know, when you're going through a painful divorce and you're losing your mind, Mm. And you're losing your money as well. And all my all my savings went. And I had to get a loan just to pay for the rest. I mean, that's that's pretty bad. Yeah. Um you, you do question God a lot and you do talk to God a lot. And I've been reading a lot of books about God and I'm not a born again Christian, but I respect different religions and you know, people's different beliefs. But I do pray every morning. Yeah. And when I meditate now for 20 minutes a day, I tend to talk to God in my mind, if you like. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say I've become more spiritual in that sense. Mm. And I certainly read more books and I listen to podcasts like Joel Osteen, which is amazing. He's an American preacher in Texas and he's superb. And he talks a lot about the Bible. And these things are good to learn. Again, it just mm. gives you a broader outlook on life. It gives yeah. you more knowledge as well, you know? I think that's right. I mean, I, I always say who coaches the coach who leads the leader. But is that that curiosity, that 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 willingness to kind of find out how I can improve myself, how you can improve yourself? I think that's why you're going from strength to strength to strength. And it's having that humility, enjoying enjoying the process, I think, as well. Because when you talked about sort of, you know, getting the country house and the car and the Range Rovers, all that kind of stuff, it was like, it was like, if I get this, I will feel this. Whereas I think with, with, when you're present like you are, it's, it's yes, you need to have dreams and aspirations and goals and visions and your vision board, but you have to enjoy the day-to-day as well. Oh, 100%. You have to. I mean, look, I'm earning about 40% less than what I did at the peak of my career. Mm. And it doesn't cost me a single bit of sleepless night at all yeah. because I'm so fulfilled emotionally. Yes. And I know that's more important. I've recently lost one stone of weight. I've got another two stone to lose, but I've lost a stone of weight. Yeah. My mental health's been outstanding for the last few months. Brilliant. My physical health is getting better. I'm swimming now four days a week. I still go for walks every morning in nature, but I swim four days a week. Yeah. Everything is getting better because I got my priorities right in life. Yeah. You know, my car, my beautiful car is well, almost six years old. And I'm not thinking, you know what, I, I need to upgrade and get an Audi A6. <laughs> I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking, you yeah. know what, my car's, my car's good for another year or two. You know, th- that's not my goal anymore. My goal is to keep working with the amazing clients I have and any new clients who approach me, anybody who wants to improve LinkedIn, anybody who wants to generate more sales, I'll happily talk to them. Not everybody is my client, in which case I'll guide them to somewhere else. Um, sometimes people just want to have one-offs, which I don't, you know, you don't really build a relationship on a one-off. Before I would just take it for financial reasons. Now it's like, I want to build a relationship with you. I don't just want to take your money. That's not really why I do this, you know? And yeah. for me, the long-term relationships are so important. And I can say no to people. Uh, every now and again, I'll speak to someone who's just quite aggressive yeah. and quite rude. And at the beginning of my career, I took those deals because I had to. Now yeah. I say no to people. I say, look, I don't think our values are lined up, right. but I wish you the very best luck. And there's always an uncomfortable pause and then they hang up. But I'm never going to coach somebody unless I like them. And that's a wonderful position to be in as a business yeah. owner where I can decide who I work with. That's very important in life to be able to make those decisions, you know? I love that. I really resonate with that as well. So kind of the penultimate question, I guess, if you could turn the clock back to any moment in your life, what would you do differently and, and why? If I could have done, when I was in my teens, my father would tell me, you know, you should really be reading books about Indian mythology. And worshipping God more and praying to him more. I'm like, Dad, I'll do that when I'm older. It's not important. It really was teaching me was about self-development and personal development. As a teenager, I didn't really understand what that was or meant. And also, it wasn't a priority. I wish I could turn back the clock and study and invest in myself as a teenager. I wish I could have understood that you cannot lead your life according to what other people think about you. You have no control. Mm. 
what other people think about you. I wish I could control my emotions more, had less self-pity, and just gone after things with more intelligence and with more responsibility. And just, I wish I discovered personal development 20 years earlier than what I did, <laughs> because my life would have been profoundly different. But, you know, it's, it's always nice to look back at things, saying, I should have done this, I should have done that. But I really wish it was less self-pity and, and just more helping others. Because when you're struggling in life, most people don't realize, Chris, that when you're struggling in life, the two things you can do which really make the biggest difference in the world, one is to take care of yourself. Self-care is so important. And the second thing is to take care of others. And that's the two things people just don't do Sure. Uh, in most cases. And I wish I had the awareness or the intelligence, whatever words you want to use, I wish I knew that at that age, you know? Yeah. I think you've probably answered my next question, but I'll ask it anyway. What tips or if there's anything, one thing people could take away from this podcast, what would you, what would you say? The smartest thing you can do in life, if you really want to progress your life and make it better, is invest in yourself. Now, that's different for everybody. For some people, they just like taking online courses. I, I've done those, but I find it just boring staring at the screen all day. But everybody's got a different way of learning. If that's how you learn and improve, go ahead and do that. I personally like the accountability of being coached. Mm. I like the fact when I work with a coach, I'll learn three times faster than if I take a course. Because I've done courses and I like them, but live events personally are, are what I prefer, but live events are sort of on hold for the time being. But me getting coached once a month is one of the best things because I'm always learning, I'm always growing, I'm always doing better. And that's so important. And having that accountability is, is key. And if you ask yourself, you know, all the top athletes in the world have got several coaches. Every entrepreneur you admire has several coaches. You should at least have one coach because it's going to take you to another level of excellence. 100% agree with you. That was absolutely superb. Again, we probably should do a follow-up on this. I really enjoyed your company, uh, your candidacy, you so your openness, and your vulnerability as well. Um, so before we go, where's the best place for anyone to find you, Niraj? Um, well, no matter how many times I say to people, go to everybody works in sales.com you can find out so much about me you can download free sales tips get into my newsletter no matter how many times i say this people just go to linkedin and follow me on linkedin so yeah, connect with me on linkedin if you want if that's your again a lot of people feel very safe on linkedin it's a great platform if you feel you have to connect with me there send me a personalized invite i heard you in chris's podcast I'd love to hear from you. If not, by all means, go to everybodyworksinsales.com and download my sales tips for 2021 and beyond. That's absolutely fine. Niraj, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Really enjoyed that. Thanks so much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. The Perfect Lead Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Vincherry. Vincherry are all-in-one CRM and ATS platform, purpose-built for recruitment staffing agencies. I chose to partner with Vincherry because honestly, I'm a customer. They keep me competitive, plug into my calendar and email, and make the whole admin part of my job as a recruiter a hell of a lot easier. The Purpose and Leadership Podcast listeners get 25% off Vincherry's onboarding. So if you're looking for a recruitment CRM to accelerate your growth, check them out at vincherry.io forward slash Chris O'Connell. Thank <laughs> you.